Lamentations, chapter 4. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of righteousness. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honour was shown to the priests, no favour to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we would, could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, for our, our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in, heaven, in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of us, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. 
He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover, uncover your sins. The second reading is from Lamentations 5, which is page 835 in the Church Bibles. Lamentations 5. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crowd... The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The Ebola uh, epidemic in uh, West Africa in 2013 to 2016 was one of the deadliest of its kind. It spread uh, around multiple countries, uh, including uh, Guinea, Liberia, Sierra Leone, uh, and it devastated communities all over Africa. There were over 28,000 suspected cases worldwide um, in those years and over 11,000 deaths. And in its deadliest form, the Ebola virus uh, leads to uncontrolled bleeding and death. And even those who survive uh, often have long-term disability. If you'd asked people in 2012 how serious Ebola was, they wouldn't have known what you were talking about. I mean, they'd never even heard of Ebola, let alone thought it was a serious deadly disease. Part of the criticisms of uh, international aid efforts and governments uh, was that they didn't really take enough notice of it. They didn't uh, take it seriously enough until it had got out of control. You might have seen the news just this week that uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, uh, Ebola continues um, to cause uh, a number of uh, deaths and uh, continues to spread. And aid workers have even met people there who still don't believe it exists. The problem is, initially, Ebola didn't seem that serious. But it turned out that it was, and still is, absolutely deadly. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament in the Bible. And as we've seen uh, some of the devastation that the Jews faced uh, when the Babylonians overthrew Jerusalem in 587 BC. 
Remember, Jerusalem, it was supposed to be the joy of the whole earth, but now it lay in ruins. God's prophets had warned his people, prophets like Jeremiah, time and time again, that their sin was serious. But they didn't believe him. They, they didn't think sin was serious. But like the Ebola virus, their sin got completely out of control. And it led to God's judgment. It turned out that sin was very serious. It was absolutely deadly. Now I wonder, as you sit here this morning, how serious do you think sin is? Now, sin is a bit of a jargon word, isn't it? But it's the name that the Bible gives uh, to uh, describe ignoring the God who made you, rejecting his rule over your, uh, your life and going your own way. And I guess it's what all of us do, isn't it? All of us sitting here uh, do. We all want to be in charge of our own lives. We all want to be king. Well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> I mean, it's not that serious, is it? Everyone else is doing it. It's eight million Londoners. If you, if you go out of here and ask anyone on the street or on the tube... Everyone is going around living with themselves as king. Nothing really bad is going to happen, is it? We'll ask that question to the writer of Lamentations. You'd get a very different answer, wouldn't you, to the 8 million Londoners today? Because if you'd been there, if you'd seen the walls of Jerusalem torn down, if you'd seen your family starving to death during the Babylonian siege, if you'd witnessed the massacre of your own people, you would never doubt that sin was serious ever again and I guess a bit like the Ebola virus you'd want to know what causes it how does it spread how can it be controlled and and how can we eliminate it because it's absolutely deadly so if you're here and you've never even heard of the word sin or, or perhaps you're not quite sure what it is or you don't think it's that serious then let's have a look together at the book of Lamentations chapters four and five have a look at chapter four Verse 1 with me. And the first thing I want us to see from Lamentations is that God punishes sin. Uh, If you've got a service sheet, you can uh, follow on on the back. God punishes sin. That's in verses 1 to 20 of chapter 4. Remember, we we said a couple of weeks ago how all of the chapters of Lamentations, um, the, the first two, start with the word how. How? How could this terrible thing happen to Jerusalem? 1 verse 1. How lonely sits the city full of people. 2 verse 1, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. God's done this in judgment. And then chapter 4 returns to our main themes of how. Have a look at chapter 4 verse 1. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. How Jerusalem has fallen. Verse 2, the precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. They're regarded as earthen pots the work of a potter's hand. It's like a, a golden wedding ring. Uh, for those of you who have a wedding ring, you probably remember the day that you got it. It's all sparkling and shiny. And it doesn't take very long, does it, before it fades. Um, over time it fades, and it looks just kind of like brass, and nothing particularly special. It's something so precious that it's become despised. That The author's saying that they were, they were worth their weight in fine gold, but they're just, they're just clay pots. And God's people who were gold have become dirty clay pots the following verses verse 3 to 10 talk about the awful famine which had affected God's people have a look at some of these verses with me verse 3 he says even jackals offer the young they nurse uh, offer the breast they nurse their young he's saying that even animals feed their young pretty much every single mammal as far as I'm aware feed their young in some way or or, or another um, most of them but God's people have become cruel to their young 
They're, they're like um, ostriches uh, in the wilderness uh, that don't really care about their, their young. Um, he says that, that God's people are, are worse than animals. In verse 4, he says that those who are nursing their children do so without giving them, being able to give them anything to, to eat. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Verse 5, those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the street. And have a look at verse 8. Their skin has shriveled on the bones like dry wood. Imagine that, seeing someone who's, who's completely skin and bone. Verse 9, he says, happy were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger. In other words, he says it would have been better to be killed by the Babylonians than to be left here uh, to starve to death. And have a look at verse 10. It's not a verse we, we like thinking about, but it says that the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children and they became food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Mothers with children have become so desperate for food and that they've killed and bored their own children to prevent themselves starving to death. You can see why he says it would have been far better to be killed by the sword. We've seen each week, haven't we, the, the horror of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. But remember again that the writer never blames the Babylonians. I'm sure he thought it was absolutely their fault. But he never for a moment tries to explain it away as if, as if God took his eye off the ball or the Babylonians have done these things. No, as we saw in chapters 1 and chapter 2, the writer is absolutely confident that the God has done it in judgment for their sin. Have a look again just to remind ourselves, 4 verse 6. He says, for the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom. Remember Sodom in Genesis 18, uh, which we'd we'll be looking at in growth groups. Sodom has been punished in a huge way for its, its sin, its, its rejection of God. But the, the author here says this is far worse. So he says in 4 verse 11, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Now, why has God done this? Why has is, is, is God caused this horrific thing to happen to Jerusalem? Well, we've seen, haven't we, because of the people's sin. But the thing is, they never thought it was serious. They never thought it would happen. Have a look at 4 verse 12 with me. They didn't think sin was serious. The kings of the earth did not believe, or any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could ever enter the gates of Jerusalem. I guess it's a bit like Ebola, isn't it? No one thought it was serious. Initially, people didn't even know what it was called. Some people thought it was a myth, and still do today. No one thought it would kill thousands of people, devastating communities, and causing untold suffering. And just in case we're in any doubt, uh, the author reminds us in, in 4 verse 13, this was for the sins of her prophets, the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. In other words, as we saw uh, last week and the week before, God's people had turned their back on him. They'd completely turned their back on him. They'd led uh, uh, the, the people, the leaders of the people, they'd led them into sin. They'd murdered righteous people in cold blood. So verse 16, the Lord scattered them among the Babylonian empire. He scattered them in exile. The final days of God's people are, are told in, in, the, in the final verses of this chapter. Um, if you have time, you can read Jeremiah 39 or 2 Kings 25 about the, the, the final days before Jerusalem 
was taken. Have a look at verse 17 for me. He, he, he says, Our eyes failed, ever watching, vainly for help. They were longing for another country like uh, Egypt to come and save them. But they wait in vain. They t- tried to, to run to the mountains in a last bid for freedom. And verse 19, he says, Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the heavens. They chased after us into the mountains, and they lay in wait in the wilderness. And what happened to their king, Zedekiah, the king that they looked to, for salvation, to, to rescue them. Well, verse 20, the, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, that's, that's God's king, the earthly king that they'd hoped in, was captured in their pits. The one that we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. They trusted in their own king, they trusted in Egypt to save them in vain. Now, it's important to, important to say, as we said each week, isn't it, that, um, that not all suffering is the same. The Ebola virus is absolutely not the same as the suffering of the people in Jerusalem in 587 BC. And the Ebola virus is not a specific judgment for sin. Ebola, as as I guess many of you will know, is a result of God's general judgment on the world, just like any disease or or virus or anything that's broken with the world. Since Genesis chapter 3, it's a sign of God being cut off from his people and the world being broken. So it's not a direct result of anyone's individual sin. But the fall of Jerusalem was because God tells us that it was. Now perhaps you're sitting here and you've been uh, the last couple of weeks as well, uh, as well, and you just feel that God is completely overreacting. I mean, you're sitting here, you're thinking, well, well, well how is it that God thinks this is, this is the right thing to do? I mean, destroying a whole city of people, mothers boiling their children. Why, why does God care so much about sin? Everyone's doing it. Everyone is living with themselves as king and ignoring their creator. What's the big deal? I mean, why does God punish sin with such absolute destruction? Well, I guess it's hard for us to, to get our heads around it, but it's because there's nothing worse than rejecting your creator. Imagine the pain that a child feels, a parent feels, sorry, when their child turns their back on them. Not just, you know, for for five minutes when they're having a tantrum or or for a day or a week, but forever. Imagine a child who rejects their parents forever. They run away from home. They renounce being part of the family. They despise the love and care that their parent has given them over years. They declare war on their parent. War against the one who's given them everything. And given them life. I guess in a, in, a, in a much, much greater way, God is cut to the heart when the children that he has created despise him, rebel against him, wishing he were dead, declare war on him. We saw last week that God is a compassionate father who, who has open arms longing for his children to come back. But his patience will not last forever. God is righteous and holy and cannot tolerate willful rebellion so I guess however much a respectable member of society you are um, living in, in, in London uh, in Dulwich uh, wherever you live, however much money you give to charity however kind you are to those around you the world will say you're, you're doing great, you're, you're, you're doing fantastic, nothing is going to happen but if you reject the God who made you, the God who gave you everything, the God who gave you life you will face his anger and his judgement guess the reason sin doesn't feel that serious is because we've forgotten that God is our creator, haven't we? We've kind of just lived life 
ignoring him. He's the God who's given us everything we enjoy. So if we turn our backs on him, we're turning our backs on the source of life. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that the judgment in in Lamentations points us forward to an even greater judgment when Jesus returns. The Bible uses the language of fire, both in in Lamentations here, but also when Jesus returns uh, in God's judgment. Listen to these words from 2 Peter 3, verse 7. Peter says that by the same word that God created the world, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of destruction and judgment of the ungodly. The Bible says that when Jesus returns, God's judgment will be complete, not just on a city like Jerusalem or or London, but on the whole world. And God will make a new world. Well, I hope you can see from Lamentations chapter 4 that sin really is serious. Like the Ebola virus, it's deadly. And the, the writer of Lamentations wouldn't need any convincing, would he? Imagine talking to him as he's looking around Jerusalem. He would need no convincing at all. But what about you? Do you need convincing of the reality of God's judgment? Well, the good news is that that God is a compassionate father and he's provided a way for us to avoid his judgment in the person of Jesus Christ. So we've seen firstly from chapter 4 that God punishes sin. But the the last couple of uh, verses of chapter 4, we see that in Christ our sins are completely paid for. Fantastic. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 21 with me. In Christ, our sins are completely paid for. The writer finishes the chapter on a slightly different note. He finishes with a warning and a glimmer of hope. So have a look at 21. He warns the Edomites, that they're God's enemies living in the land of us. And he says to them, although it's the Jews that face destruction on this occasion, that the Edomites too will face God's judgment for sin. He says, rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, at the moment you're safe, but to you also the cup shall pass. You will become bare, uh, drunk and strip yourself bare. Now, I guess it, the imagery of a cup is a, a quite a common theme in the Bible, isn't it? As some of you will know. It's often used as, a, as an imagery of God's wrath, God's judgment against sin. Listen to how Jeremiah describes it in Jeremiah 25, verse 15. He says, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They will stagger and be drunk and be crazed because of the sword I am sending among them. So the writer of Lamentations uses the imagery of a cup as well to warn other nations like Edom against being complacent. But then he says something incredible to Jerusalem. I wonder if you noticed it as the chapter was read. Have a look at Lamentations 4, verse 22. He says, The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. Isn't that amazing? The writer has seen untold misery. He's seen the full force of God's wrath against Jerusalem for their sins. And somehow he can say their punishment is accomplished. And even that they'll be brought back from exile. I mean, I mean, how can we say that? It's been a bit of a, a puzzle, hasn't it? As we've gone through Lamentations, he's got all this despair and lament and, and God's wrath. And he has these glimmers of hope. How can he say that? How can he say that, that Jerusalem's sin, that he's just seen, been punished? How can he say it's been paid for? That the punishment 
has been accomplished. Well, we saw earlier, didn't we, in Jeremiah, that he's used the imagery of the wrath, uh, God's wrath, uh, imagery of a cup of God's wrath to speak of his judgment against sin. And I guess as though God did pour his, his judgment out at various times in the Old Testament, uh, in a far greater way, we know that someone else drank the cup of God's wrath. Someone who cried out in a loud voice, it is finished, it is accomplished. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Luke 22, verse 42, he says, Remove this cup from me, I don't want to drink it, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus willingly drank the cup of God's wrath for our sin, so we didn't have to. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, Christ was punished instead of us. Now, I don't know how many of you here have read the Harry Potter books or watched any of the films, but in the Harry Potter series, the evil Lord Voldemort creates an emerald green potion. Um, uh, it's not that well known, so I'll, I'll forgive you if you've never heard of this, but he creates an emerald green potion called the Drink of Despair. I think it's probably in the, the sixth, uh, sixth book or seventh book. you have to correct me afterwards. But he does it to protect part of his soul in something called a horcrux, in a locket within the potion. Obviously, I had to, had to look up to try, try and get the, these things uh, accurate as J.K. Rowling wrote them. And the point is that this potion that, 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 that he protects his soul with can't be destroyed. So it has to be drunk. It has to be drunk by someone. And, and anyone who drinks this potion faces despair, uh, uh, physical and psychological agony, and possible death. I don't know if any of you know what I'm talking about, but in, in one of the Harry Potter um, books, Lord, Vol- uh, Lord Voldemort has made this potion and Professor Dumbledore drinks it. Do you remember that? <laughs> he drinks some of the potion and he experiences the intense physical and psychological agony uh, from drinking it. The emerald potion, it's, it's like a cup of death. And Harry's there and Dumbledore drinks some of it instead. And it's like that, that Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath for us. He drunk what we couldn't drink. It's because of Jesus that the writer of Lamentation can say, centuries earlier, the punishment of your sin, of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He can say it's accomplished, even though they've sinned against God in in terrible ways and he's punished them for their sins. He can say this cup is finally accomplished. It's being drunk only because of Jesus and hundreds of years later. The punishment for sin is so serious that it must be drunk. Like, Vold- like Vold- Lord Voldemort's potion, you, you can't just throw it away. You can't uh, sweep it under the carpet. He must punish sin, either in hell or wonderfully on the cross of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you've ever, ever, ever thought about why the, cross for Christ- uh, the, the, the symbol for Christianity is a cross. Well, it's because the cross of our, is our only hope, isn't it? It's our only hope of drinking this cup. Just think about how incredible it is that Jesus drinks this cup instead of us. That's why the cross is such good news. Because sin is serious. It leads to death. It's absolutely deadly. But Jesus' death on the cross gives us life. He pays for our sin completely. So imagine that all your sin was poured into this cup. I guess we'd have to get much bigger cups wouldn't we every time you've rejected your creator every harsh word you've said every selfish thought every moment of pride every lustful glance poured into this cup of of god's wrath who will drink the cup of your sin it's worse than Voldemort's potion it's worse than the ebola virus and you can't just get rid of it by throwing it away or pouring it down the sink give it to jesus 
Don't drink it yourself in hell. Give it to Jesus. He willingly takes it on himself at the cross. So sin is serious. We've seen that God punishes sin. But secondly, that in Christ our sins are completely paid for. So thirdly and finally, the, the, the writer of Lamentations would urge us to confess our sins to the everlasting God. And that's in chapter 5, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 22. If you have a look at the beginning of chapter 5, you'll see that it's different from the other chapters. It doesn't start with a, with a how, uh, because it's a communal lament. Rather than being from one individual, like in chapter 3, chapter 5 is said to be sung by the whole community together. It continues this theme of lament and the suffering of God's people. But it's also a prayer of confession to God. So have a look at me, uh, with me, chapter 5, verse 1. It starts with the word, remember. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Asking God to remember it, it's not because he's forgotten. <laughs> no, it's asking him to remember his covenant, to remember the promises to his people. But the writer is so full of lament that he can't not speak about it. Verse 2, he says, Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our home to foreigners. Verse 3, we've become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. Verse 6, we've given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread. They're, They're desperately trying to survive. Why? In case we'd forgotten. Verse 7, our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Look on with me, verse 8. Slaves rule over us, there's none to deliver us from their hand. Verse 10. We're still in famine, our skin is as hot as an oven with a burning heat of famine. Verse 11. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Verse 12. Princes are hung up by their hands, no respect for the elders. Verse 15. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Like last, last week we saw, it's like we've forgotten what happiness is. Why? Just in case we'd forgotten, verse 16, woe to us, for we have sinned. Once again, the writer, he doesn't blame the Babylonians, doesn't he? does he? He doesn't say that God took his eye off the ball and he's not quite sure what's going on. He knows that God sent the Babylonians as a punishment for their sin. But just like the other chapters, he's got a glimmer of hope. Have a look at verse 19 with me. 5 verse 19, he says, But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. He knows that God is still king. Despite the destruction of the temple, despite the humiliation of his people, the Lord still reigns forever. Because he's still the everlasting God. Generations come, generations go, but God remains the same. Still reigning over his world. Still in sovereign control. Still calling his people back to himself. And that's why the writer's got confidence to confess his sins to God, because he still reigns. The great thing about Queen Elizabeth II is that she still reigns. Uh, I can't quite remember how old she is, but she's reigned over many, many prime ministers, hasn't she? And she still reigns. She provides stability to this country in the midst of political uncertainty. Theresa May is the 13th Prime Minister, which Elizabeth II has reigned over, and soon to be replaced by someone else. From from Winston Churchill to Harold Wilson, Margaret Thatcher to John Major, Tony Blair to Gordon Brown, David Cameron to Theresa May, Elizabeth I has reigned over all of them. (laughs) Whatever's happening in our nation... uh, Sorry, Elizabeth Elizabeth II. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, that, that would be a very long reign indeed. <laughs> Elizabeth II has reigned over all of them. And whatever is happening to the, to the nation, uh, however much chaos or turmoil is going on in the political situation, she still reigns. And it's like that with God, isn't it? Even though his people have been driven to exile into the Babylonian Empire, he still reigns. And God still reigns today. I don't know what you think of the state of the church in this country or around the world. But in one sense, of course, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Because it doesn't change the fact that God still reigns. He still rules over his creation. God reigns. And the the writer of the Lamentations had this firmly fixed in his mind, despite all the chaos around him. I wonder if you have that firmly fixed in your mind, whatever you look around at the world or in London today, that God reigns. But have a look at how the writer ends. It's not on a kind of triumphalist note, is it? Verse 20, he says, Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you've utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The writer doesn't end in triumph, does he? Not in despair, but but neither in triumph. His people have suffered unimaginable grief. It feels like God has forgotten them. It feels like he's rejected them. It really does. And I guess the fact that he ends on this note shows us the pain is, is so intense. All very well saying God reigns, but the pain is still there. It doesn't go away. But he knows that God is the everlasting God, the one who one day will restore his people. And as we've said previously, he does, in fact, go on to bring them back from exile under the Persians. So the final chapter of Lamentations is a communal prayer, both of confession of sin, like in verse 7 and verse 16, and of pleading with God to restore them, because he still reigns. But the writer's still filled with grief, isn't he? He's still trying to make sense of the suffering of the nations. How long, God? How long is it that we're going to be like this? Have you forgotten us completely? I wonder if your suffering has stopped you confessing your sins to God, like the writer of Lamentations. Perhaps suffering has made you turn in on yourself. It's closed yourself off from other people and from God. You really don't feel like talking to anyone, let alone talking to God. It's often how suffering makes us feel. Or like the writer of Lamentations, take another look at who God is. He's the everlasting God. He's a compassionate father who longs to restore us to himself. We've said before, haven't we, that there is mystery in suffering. We don't know why God causes us to suffer in the ways we do. But we do know that in the new creation, he will do away with suffering once for all. So come to him. The writer of Lamentations would urge us, wouldn't he? Confess your sins to the everlasting God. Give your cup of sin to Jesus to drink for you, and he will restore you. Well, let's step back and have a look at Lamentations as a whole. Over the last three weeks, we've seen, haven't we, this beautifully crafted poetry, one verse for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet in all the chapters, and three in each in chapter three. He's crafted this writer, uh, this poetry of lament, lamenting the unimaginable grief 
that Jerusalem has suffered. But we've seen, haven't we, that he's in absolute certainty that God is in sovereign control over his suffering. He's, he's written about God's righteous judgment that was poured out on Christ instead of us. And he's sung, hasn't he, of God's compassionate heart, his covenant love, which gives us hope in our grief and points us to the God who we've just seen reigns forever. He still reigns. So we have to say that there is mystery in suffering, but it's a mystery that points us to the cross. Because at the cross, the wrath of God met the love of God in Christ. And the writer of, of Lamentations would urge us to flee from the wrath of God to the cross of Christ, the arms of God who loved us and suffered for us. As we finish, listen to the, the words of uh, Nicholas Walthamstorff, again in his book, Lament for a Son, which we, we, we mentioned briefly um, the last couple of weeks, uh, trying to come to terms with this, the death of his son, Eric, in a mountaineering accident. He says that God is love. That is why he suffers. To love our suffering world is to suffer. God so suffered for the world that he gave his only son to suffering. The one who doesn't see God's suffering won't see his love because God is suffering love. So suffering is down at the center of things, deep down where the meaning is. Suffering is the meaning of our world for love is the meaning and love suffers. The tears of God are the meaning of history. Let's pray. Father, we thank you very much for the book of Lamentations. Thank you that it helps us to make sense of suffering by pointing us to the cross of Jesus. Thank you for warning us of the seriousness of sin and of the need to flee to Christ, to give him the cup of our sins, to drink instead of us. And we pray, Father, that as we suffer in this broken world, we'd keep sight of him until he comes again. Amen.